and welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. I'm your host, Charlie Yu, and every week I talk to an exceptional data scientist, AI researcher, or software engineer to discover how they bring cutting edge research out of the lab and into products that people love. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to Effective Altruism and the Giving What We Can pledge. I'm not getting paid to say this, but I think these ideas are so important that I want to get the message out. If you're listening to this podcast, most likely you are well into the 1% in the world. By pledging to donate just a small fraction of your income to the most effective charities, you can save the lives of dozens of people living in extreme poverty reduce unnecessary suffering in factory farms, and improve the long-term future of humanity. Join me and over 4,900 others who have pledged to donate over $1.8 billion over their careers by going to givingwhatwecan.org. And with that, let's get on to the show. If you're an engineer working to put machine learning into production, you should definitely subscribe to the Machine Learning Engineered newsletter. Every Thursday, I send out a short email featuring the five most interesting things that I've learned that week. Past issues have included links to articles, research papers, events, and videos, all curated specifically for the busy machine learning engineer who wants to become the best at what they do. To get that in your inbox, go to cu.ai slash newsletter. Again, cyou.ai slash newsletter. Today's episode is the recording of an interview I did with Dimitrios and Vishnu from the MLOps Community Podcast. I had a lot of fun recording with them, and I hope to collaborate more in the future. You can learn more about all the great work they do at mlops.community. I hope you enjoy. Today, we're back with another coffee session, and we're joined by none other than Charlie Yu. I've got my man Vishnu with me, and we thought since Charlie's got his own podcast, we would talk about some of the best learnings that we've both seen, or all of us have seen, in the last couple months, and what some key takeaways were that we've had when we interview guests and we both or all of us are pretty privy to getting to ask questions to some of these experts. And so the game, the name of the game today is to chat about what we've learned, what some takeaways are, and definitely look into some of the trends that we've been seeing. Charlie, thank you for coming on here. And I got to compliment you on your setup. I also want to give a shout out to your podcast, your blog. If anyone wants to check that out and see more of what Charlie is doing, you can check the links below and you'll get all that info. Charlie, welcome to the MLOps Coffee Sessions. Thank you, Demetrius. Good to be here. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of uh, what you've been doing with the MLOps community. And it's funny, if I'd found the MLOps community and your podcast before I started my own I might not have done it because I thought that there was just blue ocean space out there, but it turns out you guys have been doing a lot of really cool stuff too. 
I'm glad you didn't find us before because you are making a significant contribution to the space. And so maybe we should start just by giving us a bit of background on how you got into machine learning and what inspired you to create your podcast and then what you've been doing since. Yeah, sure. So uh, I'll give a very brief overview and then we can dig into things if we want to. But I started out in high school, was on my, got introduced to coding through my school's robotics team. So first robotics. I know there's a lot of people out there who also have a similar path. And, but I didn't code on that team. That was just where I was introduced to it. The coding part comes in where I started sports betting in high school, actually. And it first started because of like teenager gambling. You want to risk some money, put some money on the line. And eventually you start doing that more and more. You start losing. You think, okay, how can I actually start to get an edge here? And it's not like it was today where having an edge in sports betting is ridiculously difficult. This was quite a few years back where it wasn't actually that hard. And I started off with just like scraping stuff off of basketball reference, baseball reference putting it into Excel, and you get uh, a little bit of an edge there. You at least start to break even. And then I started going into MATLAB, R, Python, coded my first neural network in, in high school to create embeddings for different players on NBA teams in real time. And by the time I went to college, just decided that this was what I wanted to do. It was around the time when RNNs were starting to blow up. There was the famous article from Andrew Carpathy of the unreasonable effectiveness of RNNs. I thought that was just the coolest thing ever and just decided to get into this field more and more. Did a few internships, various startups, a research lab, Amazon, and now I'm at Workday, which is a pretty big cloud enterprise SaaS company doing uh, deep learning engineering for them. Amazing. Dude, I love that story. I love how it was out of necessity to try and get an edge there and you were in high school and just went all in. So you were doing all kinds of stuff, illegal or legal, <laughs> debatable. Statue of limitations is out the window. I checked. <laughs> yeah. And then Wait, so I have a question here. I have a question here, Charlie, real quick. I, I got to know what kind of bets were you making? I've uh, been looking at, been listening too much to the Bill Simmons podcast, learning about parlays and teases and NFL. I want to know what was, what was your game back then? I started off in baseball, just doing mostly over unders and that didn't end up working. And the season ended before I was profitable in that. Then just did an NFL over unders for that as well. Did pretty well, but I th I'm still pretty sure that was mostly luck. And then it was uh, over-unders and money line for that. And then basketball was really where I made quite a bit of money and actually thought I had a real edge. And mostly it was real-time bets because it it just seemed like there was such an inefficient market and that you really... People were doing analytics before for the, uh, the, like, the before game bets, money line over-under, stuff like that, which I was doing before in other sports. But for the real-time ones... I thought there was a huge edge to be had in terms of that was because people were correctly adjusting to the in-game dynamics. Got it. Got it. Yeah. One thing that just listening to you talk, I don't know if you got, if you heard of this book, the man who solved the markets about the Rentech founder. I think it's about, yeah. James Simmons. Jim, yeah. Jim Simmons. Yeah, exactly. And 
the way you're talking about using real-time information to find an edge and, and using that to, to yield some results in sports betting, it's the same way the Rentech people really pioneered machine learning in finance to do it in the stock market, in equity markets, in bond markets, and in, in commodities markets. Pretty interesting to hear. Uh, it's just this need sometimes to find a little bit of an edge on an analytical operation can lead to the whole cycle of ML. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I've dipped my foot into the water in some quant stuff as well, although that is uh, much, much harder than sports betting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's incredible it's incredible to see and so then you made your millions betting in high school <laughs> yeah. and then you decided you're going to do something else and you went to work at workday and then what's your experience been so far as as the machine learning engineer and trying to put models into production and trying to get things out that actually have business value has because i'm sure you've seen a spectrum of things you were interning at Amazon and they seem like they have it figured out. And then now you're at Workday, and maybe you can give us a little insight into that. Yeah, for sure. So one of the biggest things that I started the podcast pretty closely after I started working. And so it's been a really interesting experience of learning things on the job and also having people like say stuff to you that Sounds smart. And then later on, you'll see it play out in real life. And oh, that's what they meant by that. So stuff like that. And I had, uh, I started the podcast because as I was working, I had an inkling that machine learning engineering was harder than most people thought and like way harder than I personally thought. I think a lot of people go into it thinking that it's you, how hard can this be? Like you take your data, you train your model, and you ship it into production. And it's just like the normal code lifecycle of, iterating throughout the team, getting feedback from customers. And then you go on to the job and you realize that there's actually a whole nother life cycle that has to be managed. And that is of your managing your data, because of course, the majority of your use cases are going to be streaming. You also have to manage your model life cycles. You have to make sure that the data is not going to drift. You have to monitor a bunch of things. <laughs> and even now monitoring deep learning, which is mostly what uh, what I work on, it, not the monitoring, but deep learning in general, is not even close to a solved problem. It's No one's really figured out how to do it. And yeah, just sought out a lot of the people who seem to have some sort of things figured out that I can use in my own job. And so what's an example of that where you were talking to someone in your podcast, you took that learning and then you went into the meeting the next day and said, hey, actually, I was talking to one of the world's experts on this topic. And this is what they said. Dude, I was cool just going to ask that same question, Vishnu. That's awesome. We're on, <laughs> we're on that. We're on that level now. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the most the one that comes to mind isn't actually from the podcast. It's from uh, it's from a book that I read, which was ML Design Patterns, which I know you're familiar with because you've had, you're going to have Locke on. Cool. <laughs> you've had Sarah Robinson yeah, on. Yeah, Locke's coming on tomorrow. That's <laughs> yeah, awesome. looking forward to that one. And it's funny, I was reading it on the on my flight back from vacation. And the preceding weeks before, we had this problem we were trying to solve. And I was pretty disappointed, actually, that I wasn't able to come up with a solution before we I left for vacation. And I was just reading it on the plane ride back. And the section on, it was two sections, actually. It was on the fine-tuning of models from an earlier epic. And you can save those and then like rerun it only on your new data. And that tends to work. Combined with some of the embedding stuff. And those two things together, I came, I just had like a, 
a eureka moment on the plane. I was like, oh my God, this solves like everything uh, that we're facing. And uh, went into work the that week after and started implementing it. Uh, well, added a bunch of Jira stories and then started implementing it. <laughs> Jira, yeah. every, everyone's best friend. Uh, boy. We can talk all about Jira for, for ML projects. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Actually, I would love to talk about Jira for ML projects. Maybe let's I'm curious. get on that rabbit hole. Yeah, let's do that real fast. Because I, you know, you're an engineer at a larger company. I'm curious how, you know, Workday probably has a ton of traditional software engineering assets and, 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 and processes they put in place. How have they adopted or adapted what they're doing to the machine learning realm? And how does that play out in the tools that are out there like Jira and Confluence and all the other sort of traditional software engineering sort of management tools, at least at Workday? Yeah, I think obviously I can't speak for every single team, but I don't think anyone has it really truly figured out where there's a lot of, uh, I'll frame it like this. So you have agile methodologies in general came out of the need for faster iteration cycles in customer requirements and the need to, and because software, you can generally build things pretty fast in two week sprints. You can have get feedback from the customer. You can code that up and you can show it to the customer and maybe they don't like the feature. And that's actually your main risk is that you are delivering something that doesn't actually have value. But with machine learning, it actually turns out that we have a way different risk profile and agile methods. While of course they're applicable, you, you can't just copy and paste it from software over to machine learning. So the risk profile is more of technical risk of if we can deliver this thing that will automate this workflow for the customer, they will love it. There's no question that they're going to love it. They definitely want this. The question is more of, can we actually do this? Can we take on this research and deliver this? And so just having the, having sprints, I won't say doesn't make sense as a whole, but it's because it is useful just for having constant progress, reviews and stuff like that. But you don't have as tight of a feedback loop just because you don't need to. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that. I think what you're talking about is giving me the same kind of Rico moment you had on the plane where it's just like, it's the same experience we struggle with where there's, just, I guess, the same sort of carpathy post about software 2.0 and sort of machine learning software being more probabilistic inherently and having this degree of uncertainty that traditional software systems don't have. I think I, I like that. I like the, I like the framing that you put on it, which is traditional agile came from a customer needs mindset. And with machine learning, we have a lot more technical risks, so to speak. It's really a question not of what should we do. It's almost like, can we do what we want to do sometimes? And I think when you put it that way, which thanks for framing that that way, I think it, it makes me feel a lot more helpful, hopeful about the future machine learning systems, because can we do X will become a lot more clear as the methods evolve, as the costs come down, as the sort of tools and everything become a lot easier to work with and a lot more standardized across the entire industry. Right now, everyone's asking the same question of, can we do this? Not just because the method is unknown, but because they're not sure they have the assets to do it right in the first place. Like I'm, sh I'm sure a lot of companies are sitting, even now, even today saying, can I trade a neural network? Can I really do that? And you can, but the knowledge to do that is certainly not out there in the same sort of way that building an app or building a website or whatever else we've been doing for the last 10, 15, 25 years has been. And so I think in some ways the future of MLOps isn't 
going more towards custom customer needs and, and, and being more intelligent because I don't think we fully tap that. I don't know what your thoughts are on that front, but it seems like a lot of it has just been, if we put a model in place, everything will solve itself. And if there's one thing we know, that's not the case. Yeah. I have two thoughts from that, which uh, one of which is related to the problems that you run into when you are trying to apply this software development, strict agile methodology over. And uh, like I said before, you're in software, you're used to quick release cycles, getting feedback and where your requirements are changing and you can adapt to that. But we recently had a situation where we were supposed to put this feature into production and we came up with a very simple model. It was the requirement was 80% accuracy for top five accuracy. And halfway through like our planned part or planned uh, quarter for doing this, the PM came to us and it was like, oh, actually the requirement has changed after we talked to customers. You now have to get 80% top one accuracy. We're like, wait a minute. <laughs> this is uh, way harder to do. And they didn't really see any problem. They were like, oh, isn't that just maybe... 20% more difficult. I don't know how they came up with that, but no, it's any, I think anyone who's worked with machine learning knows that it's not that simple. And I think that's, there's a huge point that you talk about here is that this two week agile sprint cycle, it has its benefits. And a lot of people, when they look at DevOps, that's something that is tied into DevOps. It's not really exactly the same, but a lot of DevOps, it has that methodology. And so then they want to transfer that to machine learning and ML ops. And so you think, okay, just do these sprints, but with machine learning, you need to research things. You need to figure out, okay, does this work? Like we were saying, and here the whole two week sprint is great. But like you said, if you're trying to hit a moving target, it's really difficult to make sure that you're doing it like the methodology is adequate for what you're trying, the goals that you're trying to reach. And so that I think is a huge point that you're touching on. Like how can we make methodology that borrows from these DevOps principles or this agile way of thinking, but is more suited for ML ops, because there's a lot of wrenches that are thrown into the mix when you start dealing with data and you have data on top of everything. I think that we actually, software is an anomaly in this case, in terms of project management methods, where you can have those quick feedback loops. So I think we actually need to go a little bit farther back in the project method methodology, like lineage tree, so to speak where if you look at hardware research, especially in more cutting edge fields like semiconductors, that is much more of the risk profile that machine learning presents and know very little about hardware project management, but I'm sure that some people out there are, are able to take some of those methods. And even going farther back in, the, in that lineage tree, Agile was, heavily in, Agile was heavily influenced by a lot of the lean methodology coming out of particularly Japan when Toyota's production system was brought over to the United States and it was applied and to great success in a lot of the U.S. auto manufacturers. And so I think there's actually a lot of things that we can take away from those methodologies. I know DevOps specifically was heavily influenced by a lot of the Toyota production system. Yeah. So I work at a hardware company. We work at a medical device company. And 
I think it's an interesting point. Regard hardware and machine learning in some ways as having an, a similar risk profile. I think it's I think it's definitely accurate in, in, in some ways, particularly with the reliance on certain deep subject matter experts. I think that's one thing that I've learned in hardware is from watching as an outsider, I work in the company, but I'm not a hardware engineer myself, is that you really do have people who specialize in very niche, very important, like specific areas of hardware development. And you need people like that. And the creativity and the work style that they bring in order to actually build good hardware. Because of that requirement of the kind of people and the kind of expertise you need, the project management methods are influenced by that, not the other way around. I think sometimes in software, we, we, we pick a project management approach and then we say, okay, who are the right people? Companies say, okay, I want somebody to work in an agile method, methodology. And that's backwards. You should really be thinking, okay, these are my assets. These are the people I have. These are the resources I can use. How do I manage it most effectively? Nice to, it's a nice flag on your part. I, I like that. I like that a lot. So with all that in mind, with all that quetching about engineers trying to be managed better, which could always be talking about that, going back to your podcast, what have been some of the two to three most sort of consistent trends that you've been seeing in terms of how people are talking about MLOps and the struggles that they're having putting models into production? Vishnu, sorry, Charlie, to cut you off. I was on mute and I was asking that question and I realized I was on mute. Man, it's crazy. We're definitely same wavelength today, but yeah, Charlie, I I totally want to hear this. This is one thing that I want to hear from you. Let's see. The biggest trend that I've seen, one off the right off the top of my head is the increased specialization that we're seeing in terms of job roles where you... I think we're going to start, much like we saw the emergence of the DevOps engineer maybe a few years ago, we'll probably end up seeing the MLOps engineer or some other such title that's in that role, where before we had the data scientist did everything, and her business review called it the sexiest job of the 21st century. So that was chagrin of a lot of us. And early on, I had internships that were, in retrospect, machine learning engineering internships, but were called data science ones. And we've seen that splinter out into machine learning engineer, research scientist, applied scientist. And similarly, I don't think that the machine learning engineer role is fully splintered out yet either. We're seeing a lot of... So for uh, as an ex- a personal example, in my role as a machine learning engineer, I've been in meetings with legal talking about data contracts. I've been in meetings with infrastructure talking about GPU architectures that we need. Been in meetings with obviously research scientists talking about like the math behind some of these models. And it's just such a broad role that it's pretty inevitable, I think, that we're going to see further splintering out of of that, similar to what we saw in software. So you're thinking instead of splintering out so much as like a machine learning monitoring specialist or the machine learning infrastructure specialist, it's going to be more across the lines of, okay, this is the machine learning legal specialist. And this is the machine learning, like those kind of verticals. Is that what you're, you're seeing it going towards or how does that look? Yeah, I'm not exactly sure how it's going to look. It's just one of the, a more broad trend that, that I was seeing. I don't know if it's going to be to the granularity of someone who handles legal issues in machine learning, although that could be interesting, <laughs> but yeah, you see that with ethics right now, right? That I guess that would fall under the, or I would hope that someone who's doing more ethical work with machine learning or is looking at the ethics of 
when you're putting a model into production, they're going to also be looking at, at the regulations and the legalities of that. And I always laugh because whenever I see something in the community that someone's posting a job or someone's talking about something, like some people introduce themselves as a full stack data scientist. And I laugh because it's really, that's a bold claim. Or if they're looking for a job and like the job posting says, we're looking for a full stack data scientist. And I'm just like, good luck finding that. Where do you find these people? Tell me. Yeah. I think, Charlie, one of the things that you pointed out, that splintering of the ML engineer role in the same way that the data scientists splintered, I think I, I really agree with that, especially when you consider the amount of time ML engineers doing things, that is not ML. I think that's the rule of thumb. I think in the Slack this past, just yesterday, we had a really interesting thread based on a tweet by Francois Cholet, the, the sort of founder of Keras and whatnot. And he said, a lot of companies spend most of their time doing label annotation an annotator sort of training, not really building a ton of models. And I think that's an experience that I've had at my company in healthcare. The, the single most sort of rate limiting factor in building in putting models into production, so to speak, is summarizing the, the variable clinical knowledge into a format that annotators can then apply to whatever images you may be capturing or to whatever data format you might be. And so I think if I had to really flag one, I think the future of annotation is probably one area where there's going to be a new class of professionals. And in some ways there already are, right? There are all these people who basically do mechanical Turk or labor labeling. In places like India, the way Apple Maps does annotation is 5,000 people. (laughs) Just doing labeling full time. So that'll be interesting. And the second thing on the legal side, I do think that will be its own class of legal problems, simply as you look at the whole data data protections, all the laws that are clearly going to be passed. And in each realm, you're probably going to see different kinds of legal protections. In healthcare, for example, de-identification, that is not a solved problem by any means. There's so much research going into it. In finance, there's insider trading, which is like the most important, and risk management, that's the most important problem area legally, and it has its own consequences in a legal, in a machine learning sense. So I think I, I like this theme a lot of the splintering into machine learning with the ML engineer to different roles. We're going to have to dive in deeper into that in, in future conversations. I think we can connect this to uh, some of the discussions that I've had on the podcast about about the tooling, where Josh Tobin in an earlier episode, he had he gave me one of those Eureka moments where he said that the purpose of tools is, in one sense, to connect different types of rules so that you don't have every one person doing handling all of these things. And so I think with the to give more of a to make it more a little bit more concrete, we have, why do we have Jira? Jira is so that project managers, product managers, engineers can all communicate in one spot so that you don't have to just use like Excel spreadsheets or rely on ad hoc Slack conversations to do your management. Similarly, we've seen Kubernetes where you have DevOps engineers who specifically focus on set, like setting all that up and deploying these containers. But with machine learning, because we haven't really had a lot of those advanced and canonical tools in our stack yet, you end up having not being able to communicate effectively between those roles. And thus you are not able to, and thus you have to have one person who is doing all of that stuff because it has to be end to end because you don't have those types of tools. 
Mm. Boy, I am seeing a beautiful blog post where you unpack the machine learning engineer role into the MLOps tools that are developing the category segments. And you say this could be the plausible future of the MLOps realm in the next five years. Because if you just unpack the ML engine, it's, you always see these blog posts on Substack and stuff like that, the unbundling X. And what you're telling me is we're going to unbundle the ML engineer into all these different processes that an ML engineer is traditionally thrust into. That's, that's really cool. Yeah, and I think that the along these lines, I spoke with Alex Spanos as like one of our first guests on the meetup. And he wrote a blog post or he referenced the blog post. I can't remember if he wrote it or referenced it, but it was all about the third wave of data scientists and basically how the first wave was just like, and I don't remember it good enough to do it any justice, but he was talking about this third wave and what I remember distinctly asking him is, do you see the machine learning engineer? Is there such a thing as an ML ops engineer right now? Is there such a thing as a machine learning engineer that's only doing monitoring or only working on the infrastructure? Is that, what is the role of the machine learning engineer? And I think right now it's very clear that it's so broad and so unique depending on who you talk to and what company you're talking to, because a machine learning at a machine learning engineer at Workday is probably not the same job description as machine learning engineer at Facebook or a machine learning engineer at a small startup. Uh, these people that need to be the jack of all trades are much different than the people that need to be the deep subject matter experts. And this is where I think that I could see and I could get on board for more splintering and see that being more interesting. And then the other thing that I wanted to mention was this talk that you were saying, or when you were talking with Josh and talking about tooling, it reminded me of when we talked with Todd Underwood and his like, and this comment just keeps going through my head. I like, can't, I can't shake it because I feel like it is so true. And it is such a great statement that he said, but, and it was around, we haven't seen a very vocal and like very opinionated project manager in machine learning yet. We haven't seen like someone who is saying, this is the way forward. This is how we got to do it. Just follow me and I'll take you to Eden. And we, it hasn't happened. Whereas in other forms, because it's more mature people that are very opinionated and they say, Hey, this is how you got to do it. Whether that's even in like the SREs. And if you're working with, I, I think to people that I know that are like dealing with Cassandra or dealing with Postgres or whatever it is, they have very opinionated stances on things. And then it creates like a tribe around them in machine learning. I feel like we haven't seen much of that yet. And that's probably just because it's so new still. Yeah, that's a great point. And again, we can connect it back to the tooling where uh, like tooling's in addition to its function as connecting various roles, it also serves to hard code those best practices that people have. It uh, prevents, it gives you guardrails, so to speak, so that you can't just like veer super far off the path and do something that's completely crazy. Where first example that came to my mind was Docker. There's a lot of things you can't do in Docker, but there's a lot of things you don't want to do in Docker. And so that's a good thing. And similarly, we haven't, uh, like you said, we haven't seen the emergence yet of those best practices 
or rather we haven't seen the emergence of tools that encode those best practices, even though they are, like you said, because it's so new, those best practices are still mostly just in the heads of practitioners and is mostly tacit knowledge. That's a huge point. Yeah, that's so, such a good point is because what is it? Yeah, like, And I actually I asked this on LinkedIn a while ago is that a lot of people, you hear the marketing jargon for these different tooling companies saying, oh, we encode best practices into our tooling or you will be able to follow the best practices because you use our tools and we just do it. It comes that way out of the box. And I'm thinking like, so what are these best practices that they're doing? What is it that it forces you to do? But a lot of that, like you just said, it's maybe not so clear yet because a lot of it is still in the heads of the machine learning engineer or whoever it is that's working on the project. Yeah, I think this is a great theme here. And what I would flag... Demetrius, that you said in your question about the idea of product leadership and, and how that plays into how we move forward in, in, in ML ops, the day that you don't have to be a subject matter expert in machine learning to feel confident in deploying machine learning products is the day that you will see real product leadership in machine learning. I think it's about that because no, no product manager, no product thinker comes into a realm being a, the, the biggest expert on what, what the dogmas and what the concepts and what the theory of a field is. They come because of their role playing a coordinator, a quarterback role, and playing sort of the customer empathy kind of role, right? Saying, this is what we should be focused on, not what we need to do. This is what we should be focused on. And because machine learning is still feels so esoteric, there's still so much that's new week to week, day to day. I'm sure, Charlie, you're sitting there at your job and saying, it's, just, it's still a tsunami of information that's flowing over me in terms of how much there's going on to do that could be new in machine learning. I think it's hard to see to say that kind of leadership can occur overnight. Through podcasts like Charlie's and this one, hopefully that kind of knowledge can start to come out. There we go. Great point. <laughs> So I'm wondering, Charlie, what are some other people that you've talked to and that have you or trends even that you you feel like you've been seeing things that have had given you those eureka moments or more trends? One that I feel like I've been seeing more. I'll just set the cards on the table for you and then see what you have to say about it. And if you have other ones that you can jump into, but I feel like conversations around security have been coming up a little bit more like uh, within ML ops and how do we make sure that everything is secure, not only the data, but when we have the models out there and there's so many and how to like just even serve a model securely. And then also I feel like there's also been more people talking about ethics and maybe I'm biased because I also do an ethics podcast. So when you buy a red car, a red sports car, then all you is red sports cars. But I think that feels like there's more people that are thinking about, hey, yeah, we can do this now, but should we? So I'd love to hear your take on some more trends that you feel like you've been seeing. Yeah, thanks for that prompt. It was actually something that I did want to touch on where at because Workday is in, it serves enterprise customers, security and privacy are like way at the tippy top because we have to take on that liability if any of their data gets leaked. And of course, dealing with 
human capital management data, financial data. If any of that stuff gets out, it's really bad. And so data privacy and security is always at the top of any consideration for our infrastructure. And because of some of the intricacies of some of these contracts and what we can and can't do with that data, particularly if they have uh, PII in them, there's a lot of things about our infrastructure that we cannot outsource just because we well, it's not in the contract and we couldn't put it in the contract even if we wanted to. To give a concrete example, for any piece of data that we are running machine learning on, if the customer at any point in time wants to take that data out of our system, within 14 days, we need to be able to remove that data and any artifact that it created entirely from our system. So that means that we need full data provenance. And there just aren't that many, there just aren't any infrastructure tools that are able to provide us that. So we have to come up with these ad hoc solutions for all the things that we're doing. Mm. So that requirement, that's driven by legal requirements? Yeah, it's written in the contracts for what that customer signed. And so then, so you have that legal requirement. Your team knows you have it. There's no tool out there. How does your team go? I know you can't disclose any confidential information, but I'm sure our listeners really want to hear more about how you guys solve this problem. How do you guys go about it? Yeah, unfortunately, like you said, I'm not sure exactly how much I can say here, but we end up having some lessons, some high level lessons. You end up having to do things entirely in whatever cloud provider you're using and keeping everything in that one place so that you make sure that nothing gets leaked out and that the only thing that is allowed to be exported from that secure environment is going to be the your models and other things that don't contain any of those any of that sensitive data so it's like an anti-pattern in normal software where you don't want you you want everything doing one job and you want everything to be like in its own microservice and stuff like that we can argue about microservices if we want to, but if like having all, it seems it strikes a lot of software people that having your data all in one place and everything connects to that is like not a good thing. But it ends up, especially with machine learning, where you have to have that sort of data catalog, and especially if you have privacy considerations, that just ends up being a pattern that emerges. That was something I was going to ask about, like the, I guess you just you chose one cloud provider and you're going with them and then you have this single source of truth. And so then how do you assure that or make sure that if that blows up, you're not left with uh, nothing. And so I guess that's another, (laughs) that might be a conversation for the SREs and we get into that, like how do we make sure that there's that, there's that availability there and there's not going to be problems. But the other thing that I wanted to mention when you were talking about this was it was on-prem, not a choice there because it feels like, okay, if, if you need that, then also the on-prem situation might be a better solution. So I was not at the company when all these decisions were made. So I don't necessarily know uh, a lot of the details, but I can certainly speculate. I just want to be clear that it's speculation before I get in trouble. But I think one of the bigger things is it goes back to that liability piece where managing our own secure data centers is like a really hard task. And cloud pro- commercial providers have figured it out way better than we ever could. And so we can pass on the liability of our co- of that over to them so that we don't, if we, like we would probably, to be honest, likely to screw it up in some way just because we aren't in that business. 
So it's uh, just a better solution in general to pass it off. And as far as, so this is one thing that another like trend or something that interesting that I've been seeing coming up is the idea of managed services in machine learning and how managed services are pretty standard and they're okay. And a lot of times a software engineer is going to opt for a managed service because it allows them to have more time doing other things. But we don't see that as much in machine learning. And so I'd love to hear your take on it. I know I've asked this a few times and the response I've got many times has been, it's just because it's we're too early. And so the tooling companies haven't, we haven't properly seen the ecosystem develop and that like competition happen. But I also, my question there, is it because the data, like you said, there's a big security risk if we're going to go and if we let the data be siphoned out and then someone manages it for us, or if they're someone has to come in to our area and then do all of that. And then, then someone asked, someone told me, yeah, but what about Snowflake? That's, that makes your whole theory of, oh, I don't want people to touch my data as a managed service. That just blows that theory up. Yeah, I don't necessarily know if it's about that. So with Snowflake specifically... Again, it is their core business, so you would expect them to have some have that be prior, very prioritized. So I don't necessarily know if that's actually an argument against it, but I think I generally would agree with your first first point of what other people have said about against being against managed services, which is that those best practices just aren't in there yet, and in some cases they have put up guardrails where you don't want guardrails, where you want to be able to do the thing that they supposedly want to restrict you from doing thinking specifically of uh SageMaker here where uh Sage there's like just some things that SageMaker requires you to do that aren't compatible with a lot of the things that we need to do and so we can't aren't able to utilize some of those more end-to-end features that they provide. Speaking of SageMaker and I think this could be a good segue into what we were talking about last week with Noah Noah gift and he was saying how it's a good idea in the beginning of a a startup's life to just go with a cloud provider get on either he in his opinion aws was the winner by far but he was like azure yeah maybe i think they're doing some great stuff but for him it was like it was very clear don't bet the farm on some of these machine learning tooling companies because who knows where they're going to be in five years. And if you just go with AWS or Azure or Google, you you can be assured that they're still going to be around and you're going to just maybe not have all the bells and whistles, but you're going to have good enough. And so I'm wondering if you've had any conversations where you have seen people in that boat, Hey, yeah, we'll just go with the cloud provider. And my second take on that is just it's a bummer if that is what <laughs> the whole ecosystem comes down to is like, all right, let's just choose between the three. And majority of people are going to choose AWS tooling because as much as I love Amazon, they've taken over the world already. And so I don't think there's like the 
you know, you don't have that competition and that's what I love to see about the ML ops sphere right now is there's just a ton of different companies trying to compete. And yeah, that's a, a long-winded question for you. Unpack it at, at your own <laughs> discretion. Sure. First of all, I'll say that enterprises have met much different incentives than startups do, where if you're a startup and you just want to get started, I, I would probably lean towards what he's saying, where you you don't want to be in the business of like setting up your own infrastructure for what you need to do. Obviously, there are situations where you're going to have to do that. For example, I was just talking to Pavle Jeremek, who is the founder of a biotech company using machine learning. And he was saying that they had to build out almost all of their data infrastructure from scratch just because the commercial laboratory information management software just couldn't handle the throughputs that they were going to put through it. So it's stuff like that that's really specific that you can build out as a startup. But I think generally it, it would be better because better to use a cloud provider because you're going back to risk profiles. Risk profile of a startup is probably much more in the in the market risk customer actually want this than it is in the, we don't have the infrastructure to do this exact thing that we want to do. And we don't even know if a customer is even going to want it. Yeah, it's a really good point to say enterprises have those different incentives and, and how they respond to them and the processes that they respond to. It is very different. I think from my standpoint, the question of will the cloud providers dominate the entire MLOps realm, it's possible that they'll service a, a consistent segment, right? Which is company with a large set of needs. But we know that all companies are someday going to be doing machine learning in some form because the data that companies throw off is now their single most valuable asset. It's not even necessarily that your operations or what you do is that important. It's the data that you generate on that directly informs how well you do what you're doing, which then makes that data such an incredible asset. And what, what we call machine learning is really, it could be considered a fancy form of data analytics. And so because of that, you're going to see a huge splintering, just the way you said with ML engineer, you're going to see the same huge splintering in this sort of needs that different companies are going to have. And my question to you is, in your conversations in the, in, in the ML engineering realm, what are some of those splintering use cases? We talked about security and how you guys need data prominence at work there. What are some of those other sort of interesting use cases that you're seeing where companies are needing to service their entire uh, need them, themselves? You talked about, I think, EtherBio. I saw that episode of the uh, the podcast. Let's see, use cases... I'm not sure I have a great answer for this just because I haven't most the majority of the people who I've interviewed have been using probably cloud providers and stuff like that. So I think that idea of the cloud provider and just getting something out is really another one that has been echoed many times on the coffee sessions. Like just get something out there. It doesn't matter if it's perfect or if it's like Google maturity level three, it's just make sure that you can push something out first, see how it does, see if it actually provides any value and then iterate on that. And this kind of like wraps full circle to what we were talking about in the beginning and how difficult that is that trying to hit that moving target and trying to make sure, Oh, these sprints that we've been doing, they're not getting anywhere or they're, they're not working. So it's great to think about that. Just get it out there, make sure it's working. And if it's the cloud provider that gets you the easiest way to go from zero to one, then do that in the beginning. Try to make sure that you don't get that 
vendor lock-in. And once you actually have a, I, I like what you said, the, the risk management there, once you've proven out that your product, you have product market fit, then go and worry about all that other stuff, like the fine details, right? and then bring on the best in class solutions that you can find so that you can get that incremental increase. And so, yeah, that's something that I guess is one thing that I've been hearing quite a bit and it makes sense. I'm on board with that theory. I'm not sure that the cloud providers are going to be the end, like end to end platform that a lot of people start with. It just happens to be very convenient for a lot of people who are trying to adopt machine learning because they already have the contract signed, stuff like that. Very reputable companies. But we're seeing the emergence of some of these other platforms like Snarkle, H2O, that are trying to be more of that, I guess, more specialized SageMaker for, for these different enterprises and startups. And I think in the natural life cycle of adopting ML, finding product market fit, and going to, and then scaling up, scaling all that up, it, this is just a, a pet theory, but it seems like we're going more and more towards you start with an end-to-end -end platform, and then for your specific needs, you end up building out your own tooling or adopting specific open source or man other managed tooling, for example, say a feature store, or for whatever your specific deployment requirements end up having to be. Nice summary of all the things that we've been talking about in terms of how to get started. One thing I did want to ask you about is you had some kind of some great conversations on your podcast about career advice and how to think about career as a software engineer, as a machine learning engineer. We've talked a lot of level of trends, right? What are some takeaways that you have had in terms of how to think about your career arc and what experiences you want to build as this MLOps space and machine learning engineering is moving so fast, what are some of the things that you've been thinking on that front? Yeah, that's a great question. And those podcast episodes were all me being very selfish and wanting to interview these people because I personally wanted to know the answers to these questions as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you got to meet your heroes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And in terms of where you want to position yourself, Luigi Petruno had a really interesting point on this where I was explaining like a theory that I had for how I wanted my career to go. And he was like, just throw all that all out the window and just focus on, first of all, though, with the assumption being that ML is going to be a big wave. I think we all see it. And it's one of those truths that maybe we see that not everyone in the world does already. And on that, based off of that assumption, anything that you, it's, it's like uh, you're being on pushed by a big wave in your career, if you're in the ML space in general. And so you really want to find where you specifically are interested in this thing, where you can have your own personal monopoly, where you are able to, because you just find it more interesting than everyone else, you are able to specialize in it and be better, just putting the time more than other people are. And I was more thinking of it, how you framed your question of what is the optimal strategy to, to navigate this, like this complex space in, uh, in the future. And, and really it comes down to, it's like you're on, a, you're surfing a big wave and it's all about carving your own path through it. It's not about like hyper, optimi hyper optimizing your office politics or something like that. Stuff that you might have to consider if you're in a field that is more closer to dying instead of about to become really huge. Yeah, that's so funny that you say that. And Luigi in production is such a wise man. I love everything that he puts out and was saddened to hear that he's not doing his newsletter anymore, but 
he's been doing more of these kind of style talks, which I'm happy to see also. And he's also a surfer. So I could totally see him saying that analogy completely. The funny thing is that I was just going to chime in on about that is with the MLOps community, it very much was like that for us. What happened is like we started with a company that was a tooling company that actually the main thing that they did was data provenance. And so if I would have met you 10 months ago, I would have tried to sell Workday that data provenance tool, but now they went out of business and they went out of business like a month after we started the community or the idea here was like, Hey, let's just have a place where we can tap into the ecosystem and figure out what's going on. And so it went from being part of my job description was to do this community stuff. And then all of a sudden I didn't have a company that was paying me to do it, but I really enjoyed doing it. And so then it was like, maybe I'll just keep doing it. Is that all right? Can I do that? (laughs) And it's very much like you say, just go with what you enjoy the most. And what I enjoyed was getting access to be able to talk to these really smart people and learn along the way. And figuring out like, oh, wow, that's something that someone keeps saying. I wonder if that's just like an industry specific problem or if that's something that is more a problem that people are figuring out or it hasn't been figured out. Why hasn't it been figured out? All these questions came to mind and it was just the interest in it. And then it uh, managed to attract more people that were also interested And so that's the, I a hundred percent agree with what Luigi was saying. And maybe we don't need to take like those LinkedIn classes on how to better your business politics in the company or whatever it is. I like the point about this just being a big wave that we have to find a way to surf and do it in the way that feels natural to you, not in the way that's hyper optimal because you're already writing something and you don't need to figure out all the exactly how to position and and all those components because people will get it if you do what you're passionate about and you figure out what you like to do because you'll become naturally good at it. I think that's, that, that, that is really great advice. I think the thing that I see people struggle with a lot is how do you stay on top of things? It just feels every day there's a new tool, a new concept, a new network design. And I'm curious, how do you manage the information overload that comes with being a part of the ML industry? Yeah, this is a really great question and something, again, that I was asking a lot of the guests. And again, Luigi Petrono had a really great answer for this, which was that uh, you, again, you just have to, one, follow what you're interested in, like we said before, but also really think about where you might have an edge and where you definitely don't have an edge. It goes back to the betting part, where if you are, I used to, as a personal example, I used to try and keep up with the state of the art in like all the deep learning fields. And back in 2015, 2014, you actually could read every major deep learning paper coming out. There were just a few a week. It wasn't that hard. But now that is completely impossible. There were something like 25,000 papers published on archive last year, I think in machine learning. And no one can read all that. You can't even keep up with certain subfields, even very specific ones. And Luigi said that if you're a machine learning engineer and you want to be building products that actually make an impact your edge is never going to be in the algorithm. Your edge is always going to be in the data and how you deploy your models and how you maintain those retraining pipelines. You're never going to be able to 
keep up with those PhDs at Google who have, I know one person who's done two PhDs and they work at OpenAI as a research scientist. I'm never going to be better at modeling than they are. And I don't need to be. That's not where my edge is. So I just try and stay in where my lane is and let them put out their research papers that I can use in the future once it becomes a proven out technique. I love that quote. Your edge is never in the algorithm. That is so true. I think you know, Demetrius and I, we always look for a really good quote to put on our to put on our promotion for each for each episode. I think we just found it, even though it's like a, a secondhand quote from Luigi, but it all works out. We've had both of you guys on the podcast, everything. Okay. I think that yeah, exactly, right? It makes perfect sense what you're saying there. And I think I think the hard part sometimes for me, because I, I think I've been coming to the same realization, you know, because doing some reflection where it's the networks and the algorithms and all of the math of it, I find it interesting. I find the theory interesting, but it's never really, you know, been where my talent lies. I like talking a lot at the level of systems design, technical culture, architecture, kind of thinking through the problem itself in, in, in a big picture in the context of the company. And so it's been a challenging realization for me to realize that is a space that is emerging. It's something where you have to create the knowledge yourself. It's, and it's not something where you have to feel like you have to go learn from someone else. You have to do that exploration, that reflection, and share it with the world to really build that edge that you're talking about. And it seems like you have landed on the same thesis by starting this podcast, your blog. Really great to see all the stuff you're putting out. It's funny, too, that the idea there that you're saying, this idea of the algorithm, that hard part hasn't, it hasn't been really the pain lately, right? The pain for most getting models into production is the whole, everything around it. And Todd Underwood was talking about that very bluntly. And he was like, algorithms are the easy part. <laughs> it's like, all right, yeah, go talk to your friend, the PhD, the double PhD at OpenAI. I'm sure he feels the same way, but the algorithms are in some sense, it's yeah, the algorithms are the easy part between quotations. And there's so much other stuff that's out there that comes along with it. And I'm just like, of course, that famous Google paper put it very clearly that there's so much other pieces that you need to look at. And that's really hard. That's the hard part. And so making sure that you stay in your lane. And if you're not super into those algorithms, then just get them when that's been like a proven out method, and then you can start using it, but really focus on where you have your edge, which is a, an incredible learning. And it's an awesome way of, of looking at things because then it goes back to exactly what you said before. It will in turn feed your you're doing what you want to do, right? Where you have an edge and what you're more passionate about is just going to be that feedback loop. So you're going to be able to get ahead in that way. Yeah, two things on that. One is going back to what he was saying about algorithms being the easy part. So I think the distinction we can make here is that for the super cutting edge stuff, it's definitely not the easy part, but you don't need to be cutting edge as a company. That's again, not like where you're going to be differentiating. And I saw a really... And for the mismatch between the research and how good the models are there versus the models that we put into production, I saw a really great tweet the other day after OpenAI's DALI came out, where it was something along the lines of, we can make avocado chairs with machine learning, but most companies can't even put a random forest into production. 
And that really sums up nicely, like the whole space that we're in. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's hilarious. I think there's a, I was reading Bob Iger's book, who's a former CEO of Disney. Great book, by the way, great book. But he talks about one quote that he got from, you know, one of the senior leaders he used to work with Dan Burke. And he's like, never be in the business of making trombone oil. Because trombone oil, you could be the best person in the world, but the world the world only consumes a few quarts of trombone oil a, a day or a year. And that's an idea of a very small business that you could spend all your time thinking about, but it's not that meaningful in the big picture of it. And I think sometimes in machine learning, we have the trombone oil problem where we're like, how do we optimize this metric a little bit more with this, with a long paper pub- published on archive <laughs> to say we got a little bit better on this ImageNet benchmark when the real problem isn't, okay, how do I optimize that metric a little bit more? It's how do I put this model into production? How do I, how does the data actually allow me to get to replicate that benchmark and all those things. And and the less you realize as a machine learning engineer that your job is not trombone oil, but something bigger, the better off you'll be in the long run. Yeah, and it goes, it's just the natural way that research incentives all work out where it's like, what is scientific research? It's trying to advance the state of the art, which by definition is means working on the hardest problem, not necessarily the most useful problem. And that's directly the opposite of what you want to be doing in like your day-to-day life when if you're working in a business you sir are extremely quotable <laughs> that's a great point I, yeah and i i was just going to add on to that that i keep threatening to make some ml op swag and like shirts that say nobody cares about your f1 score nobody cares about the accuracy after a certain point because it's just get that model out there figure out if it does something and so the uh, that idea there is perfect like vishnu what you were saying that whole thing it's so true and figure out where the impact can be made i think is the the cliff note here so i I guess we're getting to the end of our hour that we booked out for this charlie this has been excellent talking to you is awesome i would encourage everyone out there who is still listening and managed to put up with us for this whole time go check out charlie's podcast he's been interviewing some very bright minds and as you can tell he is a bright mind himself yeah charlie thank you man vishnu thank you as always you're my sidekick now yep yep Uh, Thank you again, Charlie, for taking the time to do this. I think we had some great discussions about how to do machine learning engineering right from a project management perspective, career, tooling. There's going to be a lot, and we're going to be coming out with a blog post that kind of summarizes all these learnings, and it's going to be a pretty big one. I'm excited for it. Oh, (laughs) awesome, guys. This was threatening. Yeah, this was really fun. And again, just, just for the listeners, if you want to check out the podcast, I actually have just released two compilation episodes of the best ones, some best clips that I had found in the previous interviews I'd done. So I think that's a, if listeners want to go check that out, again, I'm sure all the links will be in the description. Oh, nice. We got to do that too. I'm going to, I'm going to steal that idea, Charlie. Thank you. (laughs) I appreciate it, man. I really appreciate the time and we will see you in the community. If anyone wants to reach out to you, I know that you got your contact info on the blog that they can find below, but you're also in the community. So if they want to talk to you on Slack or ask any questions, feel free to, to Slack him. In exactly. Slack. In the community on Twitter. So yeah, just uh, send me a DM. <laughs> Always happy to hear from people. There we go. All right, man. Thanks. Take it easy. Thank you, Demetrius.
you so much for listening. It is a huge honor to be able to bring you these conversations. If you want to learn more about anything mentioned in this podcast, visit our website, mlengineered.com, to view detailed show notes and sign up for our email list, where every week I send out the best of what I've found that will help you become a better machine learning researcher, engineer, or entrepreneur. That's mlengineered.com. Thank you.